welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're tuning into an episode of the Redefining Society Podcast, hosted by Marco Cipelli. Let's face it, the future is now. We live in a hybrid analog digital society, and we must stop ignoring it or pretending that technology is not affecting us. The line between the physical and virtual worlds has become a figment of our imagination. On it, we are continually performing a dangerous balancing act juggling convenience, privacy, freedom, security, technology, society, culture, and even the future of humanity. There is no better place than here, and no better time than now, to muse on our relationship with technology and how to redefine what society means in this new age. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Hello, this is Marco Ciappelli with Redefining Society podcast on ITSP Magazine. And, uh, you know, we, we keep redefining society. And uh, the more and more we talk lately, I feel like we're mostly redefining artificial intelligence and uh, chat GPT and everything that is doing. Everybody's talking about it. We're talking about how to use it, how not to use it. We are making big claims of comparison with the, 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 the creation and the, the, or the atomic bomb and how a big threat is for our society. But I, you know me, I don't like to be on that side of dystopian, although I do have fun with dystopic view and scenarios here and there. But I, I try to be objective. And I think that one of the good things to do for objectivity is to look at where we come from, to look at the past, because um, we were joking here with Nigel, my guest today, that I'm going to let introduce in a few seconds, that it seems like all of a sudden, like every other technology, honestly, it's just come out of nowhere. (laughs) And all of a sudden, we have large language models, we have AI, we have uh, airplanes and, and everything, but people have been working on it for a long time is not an overnight success. It's uh, It took a while to get here. So this is what we're going to talk about here today with Nigel and also about where we're standing and the future and the ethics of it. So enough about the introduction. I want to hear the introduction from Nigel, who you are, what are you up to, and why do you want to, you like to talk about ethics and AI? How about that? Sounds good, Marco. Great to be uh, on the podcast. So yeah, I'm Nigel Cannings. I'm the CTO and co-founder of Intelligent Voice. We're a software company based here in London. Um, 
I've been working in and around um, natural language processing, language models and that sort of stuff for a very long time, actually. Um, about oh, 16, 17 years now since I started in the NLP, natural language processing game. Um, I trained as a lawyer, so I've been around language a very long time, uh, but became a technologist when I realized that technologists were more fun than lawyers, which is not saying much, but, you know, they are very slightly. Um, and, you know, we're talking a lot at the moment about AI and, and the use of, of GPUs, graphic cards and so on to do all this incredible processing. Um, but, you know, I was using these things 10 plus years ago um, to try and turn speech into text. And I sort of accidentally invented what they now call inferencing for speech on GPU back in, in 2013. So, yeah, I mean, I've been around this technology a very, very long time now. Um, you know, and these language models we talk about, people have been using speech for 30 years. Um, as you say, it looks like it's just kind of exploded. So I'm, I'm really interested to kind of look at where these things have come from, why it's suddenly taken over the world now. And, and also, you know, what does it really mean for humanity? You know, is it like, a, is it an internet level event, something which is so profound that it's a paradigm shift um, or is it something which is going to end up being a little bit more incremental and not perhaps as, as scary as everyone thinks? Yeah, and I, and I feel like uh, that's something that, I mean, we hear both sides, right? I mean, you can open the internet today and look at different uh, magazine and papers, academic research, letters that everybody signed, and we need to pause. But in the meantime, we're the one going on and pushing forward with this <laughs> even if we tell you we need to pause so that's that's another conversation there but i mean th th there is the 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 utopian vision and the dystopian vision which i think is always nice to look for me into these two extreme the reality of things is for me is where we are now and because i have you that you've been on this for for a while um what was the Eureka moment that made this big difference between what you were working on, recognizing language and translating into text, into actually create something that is simply putting words one after another, but it seems like it's it's intelligent. <laughs> Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it kind of it does it does appear to be intelligence and and the yeah i mean this idea of a language model as i said has been around for a long long time so you know i've been working in in speech recognition for 13 years now and we used to use language models to try and help um to try and help effectively determine what was the next word so you know i always use the example if someone was saying the cat sat on the you'd expect the next word to be mat and so we used to use statistical models to say, well, if you've got the choice between the word rat and mat, you're going to pick mat because that's the most likely one. So those statistical models have been used in speech recognition for a really long time. And actually, we call them language models, you know, so you can begin to understand where the concept of a large language model came. It's something which was really little and now they're really big. And we were trying to predict one or two words, you know, we used bigrams and trigrams, two and three and four word sequences to work this out. And now we're getting into context windows of 100,000 for things like Claude. So, you know, think, things have changed. But, you know, bearing in mind that even 
a couple of years ago, the concept of a large language model was still something which was really only known to data scientists. So, you know, 2016, you know, people were beginning to, to look at the, the, you know, transformer models and this sort of stuff. 2018, you know, 2018 was really the birth, the genesis of, of this new technology. And Google had a model called BERT. And BERT was the first really kind of good open source language model. But you could only predict about five or six words, you know, 10 at the outside if you were having a really good day. Um, and, but that was really the foundation of this work. But again, data scientists knew it. My team, you know, we used it for a whole load of stuff. We were doing emotion recognition and, and all sentiment recognition, all of this type of stuff using that. Where the change came and, and what really changed it, and it was something that OpenAI did that was brilliant, really, is they went from turning these things into something which could just predict the next sequence of words from a previous sequence of words to actually understanding human instruction and understanding human instruction in a way that um, humans wanted to interact with them. And it's this idea of, of RLHF, reinforcement learning with human feedback, is something they invented, which was really sticking a human in the loop of training these models. Now, it was brilliant, but also going back to the ethics question, there were some massive problems in terms of, of how they assessed the data that came out of it. Um, you've probably seen the same articles I have, that a lot of the data that was being processed and cleansed by OpenAI was processed by workers in Kenya who were being paid next to nothing and were being effectively forced to read the most graphic pornography, the most awful descriptions of, of bestiality and pedophilia and all of these things. And they were effectively slave labor. They had no choice in this. Um, and so whilst you know, OpenAI did an incredible thing in terms of moving the needle in terms of where these models could go, there was a great human cost along the way to getting us past that eureka moment uh, and to where we are now. So apart from that, that of course it, it's a big, it's, not, it's a big issue. Uh, there is many other big issues with the fact that, yeah, you, 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 you force people. Actually, I'm learning this now, to be honest, I, right. I haven't heard of it, but you also harvest tons and tons of content that you don't necessarily apparently have the right to. And, and that's where the line gets a little blurry because uh, I talk a lot with, with artists and people in the video game industry and the writing books. And it's like humans by nature, we do look at things. Uh, we, we don't just, we're not born with an idea, right? We, we educate ourselves, and we are in a way the consequence of our experience. And so, um, when we touch on that side of things, what, what is your perspective on it? I mean, I, in a way, it's like, how do you educate without actually getting things from other? And where you become the line of the lawyer in you that it becomes a legal issue for copyright? It, it's, a really, it's a really interesting question, this one, because I, I, I ponder this one quite a lot. Because 
I'm actually I'm on the on the slightly more libertarian side of this one. I have to say, mm-hmm. um, because and and I I've got a real issue with you know how we how we regulate these things, and and I think that's that's but that, I think it's a separate question as to how you build them. You know, regulation of their use, regulation of of the output, thinking about what they do is one thing. But where you actually get the content from, um, you know, if you think of AI as like a really big human brain, effectively, of course it's got to end up reading the internet, right? It's the only way it's going to do it. And there's something, you know, if you and I had the capability and the time to read and absorb the internet, we would. Because it's my dream. Exactly. In in a, in a heartbeat, you would do it, you know. It, and it's only it's only really a, a lack of 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 a you know the fact that you and I are not going to live to be a hundred um, a million, Marco. Right? It's really sad, but we're not. But if we were, we would go out and we'd absorb this knowledge. So, I I actually think and and the same way you know you you can't complain about um, scraping the internet for artificial intelligence on the one side. And then do a Google search on the other, and and not see the irony of that. I mean, the fact is, the only reason why the modern internet exists in the way it does really is because Google and other search engines went out and took every single piece of content they could, and turned it into a knowledge base. We have access to knowledge in a way that you know, when I was at school, I remember if I wanted to find something out, I used to have to get on my bicycle. And I had to cycle to the local library, hoping it was open in the rain quite often and open an encyclopedia. And, you know, 99.9% of all the essays I ever wrote were just cribbed effectively from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, so, you know, it, it, we, it's this massive explosion of knowledge. So, no, I think that, frankly, if it's out there on the Internet, if, if the content is there, then effectively it's pretty fair game. Um, and I don't, and I, and I think, you know, shutting the stable door at this point, you know, people like Reddit and Twitter now known as X, um, it's kind of saying that you can't have it. I think it's just, it's, it's churlish. I think we do need to allow that to happen. I really do. So no, I'm very much on the side of that. Where it gets interesting though, is in that question. And you touched upon it for things like musicians. So, you know, what, I suppose the question becomes, where does where does influence stop and where does copyright infringement start? Because how many how many artists, if you know, if you look at the biography of of you know artist X, it doesn't matter who it was, they will all say, well, I was deeply inspired by you know Bob Dylan or whoever it might be, or the Beatles, or you know. I sound like an old white man here, don't I? But, you know, I mean, it's, you know, but whoever it Sounds might like be. like you're about my age. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, and, and, and so that influence is everywhere. And, and it has been throughout the, the history of these things. If you copy something, and copying something, you literally got to copy it. Then absolutely right. If you spew out the same words from an Elvis Costello song, you know, then yes, you shouldn't be able to do that. But each one of these artists has been influenced by the past. And our job as humans, I think, is to demonstrate to the machines that they're great at inspiring creativity, but they're not a substitute for it. You know, a, a, an AI is never going to experience an emotional breakup. They're not going to break it with their partner. They're not going to experience death. 
and and we take we take so much inspiration anyway from the natural world from things around us we're very good as humans at taking inspiration from things you know you'd never suggest that because you heard birds tweet in a particular way and it inspired a song that somehow that wasn't creative the birds themselves have no intelligence so i mm. I, I think of you know i think of the birds in the trees as being the the ai you know they're kind of providing a level of inspiration or the the way stars are arranged in the sky you know those are naturally occurring phenomena our job as humans is to say to the ai yeah nice but we can do better mm -hmm. yeah no i i love this perspective because it's honest and i have to say overall i'm in agreement with you so you know and i i love how you use that quite you know difference and in, in the lining between influence versus infringement infringement mm -hmm. and that's that's really the, the case for me um so from a technological perspective uh, for people that again looking for that eureka movement uh, moment you you said you know the the invention of the approach to be different but was it also possible because we have more much more powerful computer we can run incredible harvesting of the internet we can run algorithms that we couldn't run with the power of computing we had a few years ago uh, is that also one of the the convergence of technology and and ideas that allows to do it the next I, step i think i think the irony is going to be that we're going to discover in a few years time that we didn't need all the processing power <laughs> okay right i mean that, that that's the stupid thing about it so we <laughs> And, 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 All right, explain know, me that. Okay. okay, okay, and and actually, you know, think think about anything, right? So, if mm. you, I I remember the very first mobile phones. I can remember walking around the city of London and seeing people carrying these massive bricks of battery, right? You know, you remember those things, huge things, the yep. Motorola phones with mm -hmm. the thing beside it. And over the course of twenty or thirty years, we've gone from that to something which can do a hundred thousand times more that will sit in your pocket and will will you know will gives you talk time of of two days so all technology be it software or hardware someone always finds a way of making it significantly more efficient so you know at the moment we are spending millions of dollars to train these foundational models and and that is a real problem because you know you need to have a thousand or two thousand GPUs, and and I I spent a lot of my life around GPUs and GPU cards. When you look at that, that's a lot of racks of servers. You know, that's a lot of building space. That's a massive amount of electricity, and that only you know I can't afford that. Um, you know, you need to be a Meta or a Google or an IBM or someone like that to be able to afford that. So, you know, that that's that's a problem for us. The fact that people need to do it. And again, the same with with the, with the data. Actually, the data that you need is not internet size, which is good. So people are building um, these fantastic models with you know, terabytes of data rather than petabytes of data. So that's good. So actually, the the amount of data required to train a model is within a human grasp, but the amount of processing power isn't. So yeah, what's happened is we've got to the point where this there has been a kind of convergence between the availability of processing power. The, the algorithms themselves are actually very simple. Um, 
but they have big problems within them. One of the reasons why it takes so much power is because effectively in these models, you're trying to make, if you've got a sequence of words, you're trying to make, you're trying to understand how each word relates to every other word and how important that is. So every time you add another sequence of words to it, the processing time goes up quadratically. So, you know, normally we expect a workload to go up in a linear fashion. You know, I start one process and it takes X amount of time. If I add another process, it's 2X because it's just twice as much work. Whereas in language modeling terms, these large language models, it kind of goes through the roof. So we're at a prop, we're at a point at the moment where we've managed to do this. It's required massive resources to do it. You're absolutely right. Huge resources. But I think that in five or 10 years time, we will look back on this and we will laugh and say, God, how stupid those people were back in the in the early 2020s to have used a thousand GPUs or 5000 GPUs to train this thing, because we now know you can do it on a laptop. Um, so and, and of course, what that will mean is the next big rise, um, whatever that might be. And I don't think it's AGI, not yet. But there will be other forms of, of intelligence that will come along out of this will then take the next thousand GPUs to build. So, uh, you know, it's always the way with with technology. You, you go over that, you go over a hump and then you kind of skate downhill very nicely. I, I love this. And it made me think about a parallel that I want to go into this because one one of the uh, talking points that I have when on the notes with you it's uh, is regulation of AI worth it and I'm not asking the question yet I want to make a comment first when you said you can run this model you can build your own API on, on your own laptop and create your own little artificial intelligence I mean for fun on ITSP magazine we created our own uh, tape three, we call it, and he's our assistant and guide. And, you know, you, you put it on the website, you create a knowledge base and, you know, and an answer question about what we do. I mean, we're sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's like, where did you find out this? You know, the classic <laughs> little hallucination. Um, and I think it's great, but I'm, I'm running kind of a parallel here with democratizing this. Um, when the internet was became accessible to everyone mozilla netscape i was excited i was in college at the time i was like this is the best thing for democracy for culture i want to go to the louvre tonight and it wasn't of course 3d or anything like that and then social media came everybody's in, in a, a, a journalist everybody put crap out there in the internet and so on one side the access is great on the other side, too much access, maybe, maybe it's not. So um, do you foresee an issue with access for AI to everyone to become, again, this kind of, well, it's great, but it's unregulated. So overall, what's your position on the regulation side? So, yeah, I mean, this, this goes back to me with my lawyer hat on again. Um, I mean, the, one of my real concerns about trying to regulate AI is regulations on this sort of thing are always years behind where the technology already is. Um, you know, we're already thinking about the new, new thing. You know, we're well ahead in terms of thinking what's coming next. And so, 
you know, we, we're seeing, and you know, we are seeing some, we're seeing some, what regulation, to me, what regulation should do is it should spark a conversation. You know, the, the idea should be to make people step back and think about what, you know, what it is they want out of the way they use data. And, and that's really what this comes down to is about how we use people's data. And there's a, there's, there's still a big conversation that we have to have in society before we can even have the AI regulation one. And that is, are we, are we willing to sell our data for free in effect? Are we, you know, do we accept the fact that every single scrap of data that goes into social media, that goes into our email, that goes into anywhere else is effectively accessible to big business to sell more stuff to us? You know, so because the AI thing kind of, I mean, to me, the the dangers of giving an ordinary person access to AI is relatively low. I mean, what I'd like to think and where I'd like to take it is actually to say, how do we, how do we help people better protect their own data to start with, right? Because if I could take my data and put my arms around it and say, that's Nigel's data, and I then had access to AI to query and manipulate that data, that would be amazing. You know, if I could, and, and I was looking at, at tape through before the podcast, you know, you've, you know, it, it enables you to, to look at the content that you guys have created and ask questions about it. I mean, that is an amazing thing to be able to do. And, and so I would like to be in a position where I, as Nigel, can take all of Nigel's emails and all of Nigel's social media posts and all of this stuff and actually manipulate it in some way, you know, inspire me for my next email you know i want to write an essay on something you know uh, and but i can't do that because at the moment all of my email data is controlled by google by outlook you know th this is the thing so i don't actually think that ai itself is going to be as dangerous as we think it is i don't think that the regulators really understand what they're regulating um I think that they, they would be much better off, as I said, looking at the underlying issues of data in our society, the security of that data, and the ability to give in. I, I would pay, Marco, I would pay to have the ability to take all of my data and put it somewhere securely. I, you know, to, to be able to, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last few years, so one of the things that I'm really interested in is, um, confidential processing so i've been working and my team have been working on confidential inferencing the idea of being able to take encrypted data and to process it in the encrypted domain and return an encrypted result so you know to be able to say here's my email me my email i encrypt it i give it to my my language model i say answer me some questions on this or write me an email based on this and send me the answer back without a cloud provider ever being able to see that. Now, that for me is the, is the direction we should be heading in. You know, my background, where my legal background comes into this is that I'm paranoid about people's data and paranoid about people's security. So I'd like to see a push towards effectively deregulating AI that benefits people individually and regulating the hell out of 
AI where it's actually affecting people collectively, you know. Uh, so really, so I'm wishing on again, but really interesting thing that has been going around LinkedIn today um, around the fact that Zoom have changed their terms and conditions. Um, so the what it says is people are saying that Zoom have changed their personal conditions to enable them to um, use your data to train their AI effectively. And, and if you read into it, that's... Ne- 80% true, maybe, but there is a lot of it in there. But what's interesting is, whilst this news story is coming out today, I went on the Wayback Machine and actually saw that that even though people are looking at these terms and conditions dated 31st of July, actually, the change took place in March. And so what's happened is, is a big company have gone out, completely change the way in which they interact with you and your data. And so that means that any transcript of a call that I've had in Zoom, they're allowed to use and do what they want with. I've given them a license to do that. And I gave it to them six months ago. So that's the sort of thing that I would like to see regulated. Because where the hell else am I going to go? I like Zoom. <laughs> no, uh, what, what am I going to do? Well, plus, if you don't use Zoom, you're going to use uh, Teams from Microsoft. You're going to go Google. Uh, I mean, it, it, you still end up not owning pretty much anything. Exactly. And and that, I think, is, you know, that is where the regulation is needed, is, to, is transparency in data, security in data. Because who at the moment, where's the alternative? Where can I go at the moment to say, actually, yes, you know, there might be some small Norwegian provider somewhere, and I believe there is a small Norwegian provider somewhere <laughs> who will actually do it. But, but you know, in terms of, I can't send a, you know, I can't send a meeting link to someone. Just using this example, I can't send a meeting link to someone for some obscure web conferencing platform in the far reaches of the internet. You know, it's got to be a mainstream provider. But none of the mainstream providers provide me with the security I need. And it's the and, same and, with mail and all of these things. And you just went into that famous convenience versus security, which exactly it's it's this sword on that hangs on everybody's head here. Um, well, because we went on cybersecurity, I and mean, if you don't mind, maybe we stretch it five mm. minutes more here. Sure. Um, so you're not too concerned about the general AI and is not here. I, you know, this could be an exercise to think about it, but um, definitely we're, I, I used, I like to say that intelligence may be not the right word <laughs> to use with AI. Maybe yeah. we need to call it, I don't know, influence or something, something that's with the uh, I, but it's not intelligence. Um, so right now, and uh, probably for when I produce this, it will be, will be over by a few days, there is Black Hat. For people that know it, that's uh, Hacker Summer Camp. We cover it as ITSP Magazine, as we were in London a, week, a month ago, as we were in RSA Conference San Francisco. And AI is the new buzzword. It's AI is everywhere in security, uh, AI-driven attack, AI-driven social engineering, because you can customize phishing in email the way that human can't because chat GPT can probably do that. You can scrap the internet. Uh, so a lot of talks around the use of AI and, and uh, large language model to, to deliver a 
cybersecurity attack. So what what's what's your take on on the the security threat that are most maybe relevant for you nowadays coming from language? So I think you know of course the ability to produce code quickly from uh, prompts and that type of stuff it's inevitably going to spark an increase in attacks of course it is because we what we're doing is we are you know even the script kiddies now have got access to some really powerful stuff mm-hmm. but that means it's incumbent upon us elsewhere in the industry to use the same stuff mm-hmm. to try and plug the holes you know that the fact is it's always it's always been that way that you know <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Someone, someone out there is trying to attack you. You're trying to defend against it. They will always use the most up-to-date weapon available to them, and that's been the same since you know people were throwing spears at each other. You know, yep. it's all, it's always you know someone throws a spear. Okay, so we'll design a shield. Great. Mm. Okay. You yep. know, yep. you know, design a shield. So we'll you know I've got I've got a bigger bow and arrow now. You know, and, and this <laughs> thing escalates like that, right? So that's that's the way of these things. So, you know, I think that. I think that in in cybersecurity terms, you know, we just have to continue to use the same uh, the same tools and understand the tools. What worries me though, and, and you touched upon it there, is the is the social attacks, the human level attacks, because that's a bit more difficult. Because when uh, you know, and again, phishing emails, I I think that the phishing email thing has been a little bit overplayed, because it only really works if you understand the person that you're sending it to. So if I'm, if it's a really well-crafted social engineering attack, then I might be able to craft something based on public things I find out about someone, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Mm. But actually the ones which are more difficult on the human level are things like the deep fakes. And, and for me, I mean, I work in and around audio all the time, but mm-hmm. you know, deep fake audio for me is actually one of the ones that really keeps me up at night. Because that is one where it's actually relatively straightforward to engineer an attack whereby, and you know, we, we hear people talk about this, some of it's apocryphal, some of it isn't. But you know, you get you get a call from your boss, you know, you're the accountant and you say, um, I need you to pay so and so. You know, uh, the invoice is coming in, I need you to pay them. So it's a two-pronged attack. You've got a, a legitimate looking in, invoice plus your boss saying we need to pay it urgently. Plus, they spoof the phone number, so it looks like. Of course, exactly. Let's put that too. Yeah, and and yeah, we we hear things about the about the ransom demands. I mean, there will be some of those, but again, so but you know, it's it's when you get into because humans are not as good at detecting artificial intelligence. I mean, we know that AI can't. I mean, OpenAI had to withdraw their text checker because they discovered that their LLM text checker couldn't tell whether an LLM had written something or not. You know, so even OpenAI can't tell. But, but the written things, I'm less worried, as I said, I think social engineering, uh, particularly deepfake audio, um, I think is going to start to be a real problem for people. And so we have to find ways of ensuring you know, that you've got a form of two-factor authentication in there, which means that you know, even just a password you know, if I phone you up and I ask you to do something unusual, you know, you need to make sure that I include the word carrot in there somewhere. Because if I've included the word carrot, it's real because the deep fake audio won't know that. So, you know, they're, they're, we're going to have to start thinking a little bit more laterally on the human to human interactions. Yep. Or just hang up and call 
that person and be sure that, back. that you know exactly the, the bank is not going to call you and now we go into educating the the users that to be honest they don't want to have this kind of thing so um it's it's right. it's a problem um I don't know. I could go in a lot of places, but we are at 35 minutes. I have to say, I really enjoyed this conversation because we actually, I think you brought some angles that are, you know, honest. I think it's because you have that double hat of technologist and lawyer. So I, yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, I would like for you to come back again. I, I'm planning to have some like more panels with to talk about this. Yeah. So um, I, I would I would appreciate if you if you had good time and um, come back and uh, I don't know. Well, uh, so how one, one last question and then okay. I'm going to close because I undetectable voice uh, spoofing. Mm. Um, I mean, you're working on it, right? Oh, it's coming. I mean, I mean, seriously, it's coming. So, so is un undetectable. Like I've, I've played around uh, mm. with, with AI and you know with my voice, and it's scary, scary good. Mm. Except that I make a joke, and my voice, it, when it's spoof, it doesn't have the Italian screw up word in English that I have. So I, mm. you could detect me, but from an intonation and all that kind of stuff, it's it's scary. Mm. So. How do you think an AI could detect the AI in that? Is there like an ID in the voice? Is it some, something that we just can't spoof? So at the moment, and I say at the moment, yeah. I, can, I can tell you which engine generated your fake voice. So, and, and we, and we, there's a, in fact, there's a blog post on our on our website about this so okay. we we were showing how you can detect so someone was spoofing barack obama right and and so at the moment you can tell the engine because the 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 signature the the kind of the, what right. we call the the x vector signature kind of points back to an original engine hmm. but already we're seeing that because the way in which this stuff is being generated is changing that that signature is breaking down um, and it won't be long before you don't need too much data about someone. You're absolutely right. There are certain things you've got to get them in different scenarios, how they laugh, how they cry. Um, but for, for kind of day-to-day -day stuff, it's going to be really difficult to tell. And, and actually, you're probably only going to be able to do it if you've got some really good samples of what someone normally does and you can run a, a part like a it, comparison you're gonna have to do a comparison to get it and and, and look for those subtleties because there's something in uh, as i'm sure you're aware in in avatar terms this concept of the uncanny valley yep. that you know where you know we as humans you know we don't want avatars of cats but what we really hate is an avatar which is almost looks like someone but isn't quite them. So, 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 you know, it's a really weird thing. And, and so humans are actually quite good at detecting really subtle differences between a fake and the real thing. And, and we, and it's about how do we capture that type of thing? It will normally be some sort of nuance of speech and, but you'll have to be familiar. So if we're not familiar with the person, then detecting that tell is going to be really, really hard. Wow. 
All right, and with that, uh, I'm just gonna disclose that uh, I wasn't myself, and Nigel wasn't. It was like our <laughs> evil twins having a conversation here. No, no, this this was real. As is real is redefining society podcast. Uh, stay tuned. Any uh, way to connect with uh, Nigel, you'll find it in the notes. There'll be a written up about our conversation as well. Please share it. Subscribe get in touch and uh yeah nigel thank you so much i'm really looking forward to have you back on the show thank thanks for having me on market thanks a lot all right bye Bye, everybody stay tuned for some more kind of crazy conversation lately actually bye devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Society, hosted by Marco Cipelli. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.